Mother God, I just pray for uh, all these people and our families and our um, and our friends and uh, who have received the good news of how to go to heaven through Jesus Christ, how to get to know God. And I just pray that you will convict them. They have one more. Ch- they have yet another chance. So with the cards and the music and the discussion, I, I pray for that. And I pray that there's a revival in our country as well as the world. And I thank you for your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's always good in virtually any study of a book like what we're doing, the book of Romans, is to be reminded of the big picture, be reminded of kind of the overall flow of a book. So that's one of the things I'd like to do for you today. And since we're in the last major division, we will give you an overview of chapters 12 through 16. So you have kind of the big picture so you don't miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes when you get into detail, you can lose sight of some of these bigger concepts of what's going on in a book like the book of Romans. So I want to kind of give you an overview. We won't go sentence by sentence. I'm going to just highlight some of the major sentences, kind of the hearts of each of the paragraphs, and I'll have some of you kind of join in and read them. I've got most of the reading on the the screen itself, so you don't need to be thumbing through your your Bibles there. So feel free to jump in at at that point and jump in if something's not clear as usual. Or if you have a comment that you want to add to what we're discussing, then feel free to do that as well. So we're going to look at what I title as the chapters that deal with application. And as we've been uh, discussing, this is written to the Romans, to believers, to believers in Rome. I've stressed that this is the most theological of all of the books of the Bible. And it's not written, even though in the early chapters, he's addressing the unbeliever, but it's not addressed to the unbeliever. It's addressed to the believer so that we will have a better place to be able to share the gospel. So you need to understand the lostness of mankind. So it's not directed directly at the unbeliever, even though that's the main uh, emphasis of those portions. And in that We're given uh, theology that follows through that. So it's written to believers, and uh, keep that in mind as we look at these passages, and particularly the the portions that we're going to look at today. Just kind of a big picture of the whole book. After an introduction, we have eight chapters of God providing righteousness, the provision of righteousness. Key word of the whole book is the concept of the righteousness of God or righteousness. And that concept we defined as a right standing before God. And it involves many, many other aspects besides just salvation or justification, which is the main word that Paul uses in uh, Romans 1 through 8. So justification or a right standing before God that includes two aspects. Anyone care to remind us of the two major aspects of justification? There's a negative 
And like Linda likes to think mathematically, there's a negative and there's a positive. What's the negative? In the provision of God's righteousness, we call that justification. And remember the Greek words are related, part of the word group. Anyone quickly remember? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Yes, that's the uh, negative aspect. The positive. And the positive Righteousness. Yeah, provision of righteousness, yes, which includes eternal life and all of the aspects with it. So forgiveness of sin is the negative, and the positive is we're we're declared righteous, a declaration of righteousness. So Paul goes into eight chapters discussing all of the aspects of it and how it works out in living, and it includes... The unbeliever who stands condemned before a holy God, that's his standing. He has no righteousness. There's no righteousness, no standing, faces eternal judgment, but righteousness is provided on the basis of what Jesus has done, justification by trusting in what Christ has done, and he has a whole subsection of justification. So you have condemnation, justification, and then how it works itself out, at least the principles in chapter 6 through 8, we call that sanctification. So that's the provision of God's righteousness. And then related to that, well, how did Jews fit in to this whole plan? Because it seems a little bit different from the way God dealt with people in the Old Testament. You had to become a Jew, essentially. You had to come through the nation of Israel. You had to uh, respond to what God had provided for his people through his people. So how does the nation of Israel fit in? So he's going to vindicate the setting aside of the nation of Israel, 9 through 11. So Israel in the church age is set aside, and God is perfectly righteous in doing this, and he reviews all of that. We've just completed that section or sub, uh, subdivision last week, and there's a future for Israel. God is not finished with them. God is righteous in preserving Israel as well, and ultimately will bring them into a saving relationship with all of the aspects of salvation that will include a physical deliverance during a period of tribulation. Now, Paul doesn't expand it on every detail, but when we put together other passages, we can gather some of those conclusions. So that brings us to the portion that we'll focus in on today. So we have provision, we have vindication, and now that provision that is available to both Jew and Gentile in this age, and Israel will experience in a national way in the future, how does that work out in everyday living? We can call that application. So now he's going to shift from uh, the provision of righteousness to how does it work itself out? What does it look like in everyday life? And he gives some specific areas that we'll look at. And for those of you that are grammarians, let me ask you this question. From a grammatical standpoint, what is the most obvious difference between chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through at least chapter 15, verse 13, which is the application portion. 
And then the last part of the book is just a, con a long conclusion, the last part of 15 through the end of chapter 16, all of chapter 16. Anyone want to venture a grammatical difference that kind of hints that there's a, a new division that is, that is somewhat different from everything that we've looked at, chapters 1 through 11? Anyone got an insight on that? First grammatical. Well, it seems like it goes from past to present. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. Uh, there's another difference that I had in mind, but yeah, I think that, that would be, uh, Imperative news. very good. Who is that? Norman? Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a, there's a change from the way sentences are structured. First 11 chapters is primarily what we would describe as the indicative mood, or in other words, statements of fact, you might say, or propositions, or theology, or presentation of ideas, and you present it in the indicative mood. In other words, statements of fact. In fact, there are only four sentences in all of chapters 1 through 11 that have the imperative mood, in other words, commands, things to do, commandments. And those all are clustered together in chapter 6 because it gives us the principles that deal with how to live it out. So there are four commands there, and we looked at them when we were in chapter 6. We'll be reminded of some of them next week in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But beginning uh, with... Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have the first, except for those four, the first imperative mood sentences or framed as a command, things to do, things to act on, things to live out. So grammatically, you see a, a kind of a very evident change from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. Now, this is not unusual with Paul. In fact, he structures the entire book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, in the same way. He has what we would describe, not using the grammatical things that we just discussed, the doctrinal section or the teaching section. Ephesians 1 through 3 are predominantly doctrinal or teaching. And then 4, how should we live it out? In other words, in light of what God has done, how should we respond? So this is the applicational stage in the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 12 through the end of, or the middle of chapter 15. And in that, there are four areas that he's going to describe. And since you like charts, I'll put together another chart here that uh, summarizes this applicational section. How does it look like in other words, how does righteousness work itself out in our relationship to God? And we'll focus on those two verses next week. And essentially, is we make ourselves available to him. We make ourselves put on an altar, you might say. We put ourselves on an altar and letting God use us. He uses sacrificial language in verses 1 and 2. And we'll come back and look at that verse but just in the broad outline, the next area that he deals with is the church. In other words, how do we relate or how does righteousness work itself out in relationship to brothers and sisters in Christ? 
We can summarize that as the church, verses 3 through 21, which is essentially the end of chapter 12. And then we have a third major subsection within this subdivision. What does it look like in relationship to society? And he deals more specifically with government and the relationship with government there. We'll look at a few verses in chapter 13. And then something of a special area relating to brothers and sisters in Christ. We might subtitle that Christian Liberty. That's all of chapter 14 to about the middle of chapter 15. So he's going to deal with these four different areas, applying the concept of God's righteousness, giving us little descriptions, little commands relating to how this righteousness should work itself out in everyday practical living, everyday practical examples. So that's kind of the big picture. And then in fifteen fourteen we have a conclusion, a long conclusion, that uh, concludes the entire book of Romans. Everybody got that? We'll be reviewing that as we go through the book, just like we reviewed kind of a chart that I gave you when we were in 9 through 11. Same chart, except on in an outline form. First 17 verses is introductory, another long introduction as we have a long conclusion. And then we have the provision of God's righteousness, verse 18 through the end of chapter 18, that I already gave you a brief overview of. And then we completed the vindication of God's righteousness, chapter 9 through 11. And this is the outline that I gave you on the outline sheet that we that I sent by way of email. And then that brings us to, uh, in the outline, number four or part four, the application of God's righteousness. And you can see that throughout this idea of the righteousness of God permeates the entire book. That's the main theme. And now we're simply applying it. And let's take a closer look. And again, we're just summarizing at the idea of the application in relationship to God or the application to God. And there's only two verses there. And uh, but it summarizes basically the entire Christian walk. It reviews a little bit. We'll look at it in more detail next time. It reviews for us primarily chapters 6 through 8, and more specifically chapter 6 that we've already looked at. So verse 1, first complete sentence, therefore, and you might take that therefore, we'll talk about this more, relating to everything that he's talked about before, because now he's moving into this next major division. So in light of all of the doctrine, in light of justification that comes by faith and faith alone, in light of sanctification that we live by faith and faith alone as well, in light of how God is going to deal with Israel and has dealt with Israel in the past and will in the future, Therefore, based on that grace, based on that goodness of God, on that sovereign work of God, I urge you, or some translations beseech you, or even beg you, giving us the idea that this is what God would desire, 
and it's on the basis of the mercies of God. And then we have the first imperative, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Kind of summarizing somewhat the entire Christian walk. It's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, everyday presentation like a living sacrifice. He's going to go on. He's using sacrificial language that the Jewish believing audience would immediately think of the entire sacrificial system. Present your bodies. Instead of an animal that has been slain and is dead, it's a living and a holy sacrifice, and it's acceptable to God. In other words, in fellowship, in personal relationship, in in connection with God himself, it's acceptable. And this is our day-by-day, moment-by-moment spiritual service of worship. It's not a one-time Sunday morning experience. It's an ongoing day-by-day experience. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the entire Christian life, and particularly it starts with that relationship with God. So that's the uh, first part there. And verse 2, Do not be. there's two aspects to it. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, we set aside the thinking, the worldview, the attitudes, the way that we approach life from the worldly perspective. We're constantly battling because we're constantly influenced to that. Do not be conformed to this world. And then there's also the positive, but be transformed. That's the entire Christian walk a transforming day-by-day, moment-by-moment transformation. And it begins with the renewing of your mind. We saw that already in chapter 6. A biblical worldview, adopting a biblical worldview. It doesn't happen overnight. This is an ongoing transformation that uh, will not be completed in this life. And then he gives some details in that proving what the will of God is. So that's our relationship to God, very important. Now the relationship to the the church, and in the outline, verses 3 through 8, it begins with an exercise of spiritual gifts. In fact, you can divide this portion into two parts, exercise of spiritual gifts, three through eight. That's at the heart of how we relate to one another. We basically relate to one another on the basis of how do we minister to one another. And you could begin, I don't know, does somebody want to read verse three? I don't have it on the the screen. I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. I had a question. Good. In one one, it talks about the service, or, or Paul being a servant, mm-hmm. and then we have service up here. Verse I wonder one. if that's where you got the day-by-day part, moment-by-moment uh, part that you added to 12.1. Well, I kind of summarized, I think, what he's getting at there. Uh, service. Reasonable service and servant, or are they different words entirely? Uh, there's actually, uh, what is it? Uh, they're all related. 
In other words, it, it's related to this sacrifice, this presentation of our bodies. They're all related to it. That's kind of the heart. And what he's adding there is as we do that, and the presenting of the bodies is in the present tense. That's where I get the idea of this moment-by-moment idea. Okay. Well, I was just thinking of the words in one one. he talks about himself being a servant, I think a slave. And then also we have the servant, possibly slave word in twelve one, but I don't have any Greek. Uh, no, that doulas, he's assuming all that, but, but it's not contained in the verse per se. The spiritual, we'll, we'll talk about the details. That That's an interesting word that's going to take a lot of expansion. Some translations translate it rational. It, it has to do with kind of a combination of things. New American Standard chooses the word spiritual there. We'll, we'll talk some more about that next week, try to expand that, that verse. So you read uh, verse 3. Verse 3, kind of a summary of it is, you know, we always battle self-centeredness and how, you know, it's all about me. So he starts off with kind of dealing with Uh, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself. In other words, avoid this self-centered aspect. And uh, instead, verse 4, would somebody care to read verse 4? After we kind of revise our focus, now he's going to give us kind of the proper area that we focus on in terms of our relationship to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Anyone? For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Okay, I'm glad you read verse 5 as well. But essentially, our relationship to one another can be summarized in that we have a close relationship to one another. We're members of one another. There is one body. Now, this includes all true believers, not just the particular denomination or the particular local body that you're a part of. And in our group, we're representing several different, even here in Albuquerque, several different congregations, you might say. But because we all have Christ in common, because we all have justification by faith in common, we are members of one another, and we relate to one another in relationship to spiritual gifts. And that's what he's going to outline in the following passages. Uh, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So, Spiritual gifts are given on the basis of grace, just like everything else that we have studied before. And then uh, the second part, so he's going to deal with the exercise of spiritual gifts. All of us have spiritual gifts, so all of us are involved in the body of Christ, or the encouragement here is to be involved with one another There's not just some that are leaders and spiritual leaders that do ministry. The concept is that all of us should have a ministry to one another in one way or another, depending on what that spiritual gift may be. And 
we'll discuss spiritual gifts when we get to verses three through eight. And another relationship. Hey, yeah, Steve. Hey, I just had a question here. Then is some of this alluding to that because we all have these gifts, there's, is there any kind of warning not to put too much emphasis in any one person Absolutely. that we all have these gifts and need each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's not a focus, in fact, in this whole passage on leadership. That's a whole other area. In fact, that's one of the areas of spiritual gifts and calling and that sort of thing. Yeah, the emphasis is we're each members of one another. There's a there's a body, and for the proper functioning of the body, all of the parts need to, just like a physical body, need to be working. If there's a, an ankle that is hurting, it hinders the walking of the entire body. So we deal with individuals, and we heal one another or encourage one another, strengthen one another. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the focus of the New Testament. We've kind of taken individuals, elevated some, put others down, done all kinds of things to distort, I think, what God has in mind in terms of the functioning of any any body or local body, or in our case, people as we relate to one another in this group as well. And then verses 9 through 21, the exercise of love. Notice it's broad, so there should be a certain amount of love exercised, and that should be evident. Remember, Jesus says, they will know you by your love. Somebody read verses 9 and 10. I've got them on the screen there. So that's kind of the heart of that whole portion, 9 through 21. This is the way he starts it off. Anyone got it? Let love be hypocrisy. Let's see, there are two people there. Geneva, go ahead. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Notice all the commands, all of the verbs in imperative mood. We didn't have that until we got to verse 1, and now we have a series of them, 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. We have a tendency of loving self-centeredly, so we need to love in a biblical way. We abhor evil. Kind of general statements here in relationship to one another clinging to what is good, devoted to one another. Notice the emphasis of one another. In fact, there's lots of one another's in this passage, devoted to one another. And here we have a a different word for love. So you have two words for love here, the agape love at the beginning, and then here we have the phileo love. And then again, an avoidance of self-centeredness, give preference to another, one another, one another in honor. That is That kind of captures this whole second part of our relationship in the body of Christ. So there's other aspects of it that, uh, that are contained there. If you keep reading through, we have some more commands, if you will, or sentences in the imperative mood, and particularly in terms of conflicts as well. So he'll deal with that as you move through that part. So after the portion on the church, all the way through verse 21, 
that moves us to society, verse 13. And I, I use that because it's broader than simply dealing with, with government or authority. First seven verses, subjection to authority. And uh, this is also very needed in terms of guidance or how we work righteousness out amongst us. And in that, would somebody, see somebody was going to read and was kind of talking over someone else that other, who was that? Katie. Katie, why don't you read uh, verse 1, chapter 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And why don't you keep reading verse 2. Okay. I'm going to... Oh, sorry about glance that. Down. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Let me glance down at the Bible now. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay. I think he starts off with kind of the leading thought of that whole portion, first seven verses there. And notice again, it's in the imperative, be in subjection. That's the verb to the governing authorities. Now, it's broader than just government, but I think uh, that's the focus of this passage, particularly the governing authorities. And then he goes into more general statements. There's no authority except from God. So all authority is under the sovereign control, under the sovereign uh, will of God. So when we resist government, we're actually resisting the authority that God has put us under. Now, he doesn't deal with with families per se, but I think in general, God has set up families such that there is a, a structure of authority, and he's placed men in, in a position of authority in the family, and those under that authority should be careful not to uh, go beyond that, otherwise... Uh, they are in danger of God's discipline because God is the one that has set up families as well as government. But in this context, I think the focus is primarily government and the governing authorities. In fact, in the passage, he describes governing authorities with the same word that he will attach to those that lead within the body of Christ, those that lead within the church. Uh, They're called ministers in that more specific role. And he uses the same word to describe the governing authorities later. They are ministers of God. Now, they may be atheists. They may be unbelievers. But God is sovereign over them. And they can only exercise authority within certain boundaries. Certainly, they can do things that are evil and contrary to what God has. But overall, we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. I think there are some exceptions. and We have some examples in the book of Acts. So we'll discuss more of those details when we get to chapter 13, the concept of authority. Go ahead, Katie. 
we're, we're supposed to um, submit to authority unless it causes us to sin, right? And, yeah, I think, okay. I think basically if they command us or demand of us to do things that are clearly contrary to God's will, that seems to be the pattern or the uh, the example that we have from the book of Acts. Yes, Acts chapter 4, if okay. you want to refer to it. Jim. All right. Yeah, um, that's interesting that you mentioned the ministers being authorities uh, when the word for ministers also comes from, if it's used, if it's the word that I'm thinking of, comes from the Greek that means servant. Yes. So we have servants who are authorities. Isn't that a kind of an interesting concept? Very much, yeah. And I think the idea is that God is above them. Uh, yeah, verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you. In other words, they are performing a ministry to uh, the believer and to society in general. Yeah, that's an interesting word. We'll camp on it. Um. I like to put police instead of uh, powers and authorities and read it that way. It makes a lot more sense to me personally, especially in the times in which we live. Yeah, I think it goes beyond that. But yeah, I think we can think in terms of personal application. I think that would be the the uh, more immediate way that government kind of uh, exercises its ministry to us. Especially given the rejection of police we have today. Yep, absolutely. And we'll talk about the purpose of government. I think we have hints at, maybe more than hints at that in this uh, paragraph of seven verses there. Yeah, contrast that with the concept of Marxism. Absolutely, yeah. Now, uh, now that's in the, go, go ahead, sorry. Janie. When you do go into detail, can you comment on the fact that our founding fathers gave the citizens authority to place these uh, people in the government to uh, administer over us. Yeah, we can discuss that. Yeah, very, very unique amongst all governments that have ever existed. Yeah, we can talk about that. You'll have to remind me because it may be a couple of months from now. There's another subsection from chapter 13 verses 8 through 10. And again, the focus, I think here, that's why I add uh, the little phrase, love of the citizens, whereas we, he's already talked about love in chapter 12, but I think that's more in relationship to brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. But now, because he's talking about society and he begins with subjection to authority, uh, verses 8 through 10, the, the love that he has there, I think, is a, a broader in terms of uh, citizens or fellow members of, of a community that is broader than simply the, the church itself, or people within the nation, how we, lo- how we interact with one another. So beginning in verse 8 through 10, love of citizens, I summarize it. Who wants to read verse 8 there? Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth, another hath fulfilled the law. Okay, and my version says, for he who loves his neighbor. So oftentimes our neighbor are not members of the body of Christ. They're members of the, the community. 
And if you look at how Jesus defines neighbor, it can be anyone. It can be Jew, Gentile. It can be somebody that we don't even know. Whoever has a need within the culture, we owe them nothing except love. Uh, There's another one another. And notice again, we have the imperatives. And uh, the love here, very broadly, is a fulfillment of the law, which a Jewish audience would uh, immediately take notice concerning it. Who wants to read verse 10? Notice the theme continues. Anyone? Love worketh no ill to the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he repeats the idea of fulfilling of the law, repeats the idea of neighbor, so verse 8 and 10 somewhat go together. And there's actually a third part of verse 13, another paragraph, you might say 11 through 14, kind of motivation for what I'd summarize that as motivation for alert living. We always stress context, passages in context. And I think it's very common for us to read these verses and not think so much of the context. And the immediate context here is within society. So it's somewhat broad. And within that, there are lots of dangers that we need to be alerted to. And 11 and 12, notice kind of the emphasis of those two verses. Somebody else read. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to those than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Okay. We live in a dark age, but we need to keep our perspective, knowing the time. In other words, we're aware of what's going on in our culture. We, we know that it's an evil age and evil things are going on, but we need to keep our perspective. It may only be temporary. It, it's going to pass. And notice the little phrase, salvation is nearer. When people see that word, salvation, either the verb or the noun form, they immediately think of the moment they trusted in Jesus Christ. But here's an example where it's not talking about justification aspect of salvation, but what aspect of salvation? And you might even translate it, deliverance is nearer to kind of get away from thinking of justification. Somebody started a comment there. Redeeming the time, like Ephesians 5.14, wake up, O sleeper, awake sleeper, and Christ will give you. I don't know. I don't think that's the focus here. Rescue? Yeah. Rescue out of this evil age. I think he's looking eschatologically, and, and in terms of the church, the rapture. Now, it's not stated explicitly, but that's the event that we look forward to when ultimate salvation comes. In other words, the future aspect of salvation here, it's, we're nearer to it every day. So we need hey, to, Ray, we need Ray. to go ahead, Steve first. Yeah. So the night is almost gone and the day is near. I remember, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and there was night. And then during the day was 
when Sodom and Gomorrah ended. So I kind of see that verse in relationship to that part of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, and for the believer, the day is when we go to be with the Lord, where everything is visible, everything is made made light or known. And in the meantime, we put on the armor of light. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. So he's kind of alerting us, keep your perspective in the midst of things going on in the culture. Doesn't matter who the president is, our salvation is just one more day nearer. And in light of the darkness that we live in, don't be a part of it but put on the armor of light. This kind of expands verse 1 and 2 as well of chapter 12 that we'll look at. We don't want to be part of the culture doing the things that the culture does, but we want to be lights, and we do that by doing the things that the Lord desires of us. So that's society, chapter 13. Then we have something of a special case, you might say, where he deals with Christian liberty. How do we live? Again, a focus away from our rights or the liberty or the freedom that we have in Christ. We are free in Christ, but we need to exercise that freedom in light of those living around us, and we may need to limit our freedom dependent on relationships that we may have or situations we might find ourselves in. So he deals with this area of Christian liberty from chapter 14, all of 14, and the mid part of chapter 15. So that kind of completes the portion on application. So we have the principle of freedom, first 12 verses. So we, we will divide that portion up. Who wants to read 14, 1 through 2? Somebody that perhaps hasn't read yet. Anyone there? Connie's got her mic on. Sure. I'll, I'll read my version. 14, 1 and 2. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Accept one another, kind of broadly, um, I think the focus is where amongst brothers, but accepting one another who is weak. In other words, uh, a newer believer that doesn't necessarily, he's still working through this concept of freedom. And we can do things that harm them, that, uh, that cause them to stumble. He's going to talk about that. So he's going to give some examples from the culture that we'll look at. And then we'll draw applications from them. There was an issue with Jewish believers that had not yet understood the relationship of being free from the law. So they still observed some of the Jewish aspects of the law. And they felt like there were certain things they couldn't eat, certain things they could eat. So that if we're around people like that, we'll think of other examples from our culture then uh, we, in love, we will, in fact, limit our freedom for the benefit of others. So he lays out the principle of freedom, and then freedom is regulated by love, 13 through 23. Who wants to read uh, verse 15? It should be 14, 15. Anyone? 14, 15. Yeah. 
If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Okay. Again, notice the imperatives and notice how we apply righteousness in relationship to a brother that can be offended. So you have to watch what you do in relationship to one another. You can hurt fellow brothers, and we need to be sensitive to one another, walking in such a way that we walk in love. Another verse along the same lines, and again, I've got 1419. Somebody read that one. Another major theme is... Go ahead. Okay, so 1419 is, uh, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So we try to resolve conflicts, not create conflicts by the way we live. And we pursue peace, two things. We pursue peace and we're always interested in the building up. And there's another one another building up of one another. And this is again within brothers and sisters, building up of one another, edifying, ministering to, encouraging, strengthening, all of the aspects that the word building up entails. And then chapter 15, first 13 verses, if you want a vivid example, Christ supplies that. Uh, Who wants to read 15.3? Anyone? All right. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay, so that kind of puts Christ at the focus there, and Christ is the ultimate example that we have in uh, verses uh, 1 through 13, and again, verse 17, somebody read it. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Okay, so we accept one another. We're tolerant of one another. We're at different places. There are some that are more mature. There are some that are not so mature. There are some that are out of fellowship. You know, different aspects of one another. And we accept people where they're at and try to encourage them the best we can. And again, just as Christ... So Christ is the focus, also accepted us to the glory of God. So those are the major portions of the applicational part of the book of Romans. And then the rest is a conclusion. We have Paul's purpose for writing. Somebody read 15 through 16. He's telling us why he wrote this book. Anyone? But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Notice... One of the major purposes of the book is to remind believers of what they've already been taught, what they already know, and he prefaces that at the beginning, I have written, in other words, this is why I am writing this letter to you, to remind you, and he reminds them of his primary minister to the Gentiles. Remember, he's writing to Jew and Gentile. So he gives us the purpose of the whole book there, 
And he also, as part of the conclusion, lays out some of his plans where he goes back to some of the things he mentioned in the introduction. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. So he ultimately plans to visit them. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, Gentiles, I will go on by way of you. He's planning to go through Rome and visit them on his way to Spain. So those are his plans. And then we have several personal greetings, chapter 16, 1 through 24. And then we have a series of greetings. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, which is outside of Corinth. And it's believed that that's where Paul is writing this letter. So he has contact with Phoebe. And when we were visiting Corinth, we stopped off at Sancria. This is the uh, port the remains of the first century port there in Sincrea. And you might recognize a few people from our Israel group in the photo there. Amy is in the center there. If you don't recognize Amy, I don't know if the, Amy's with us today. You here, Amy? No, but I am. She's out ballooning. Sorry. <laughs> okay, there's Wanda, Amy's mother. And then we have a series of greetings Greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, Prisca and Achilla. Also greet the church that is in their house. So this is written to several churches. Some of them are house churches. Greet another guy, Epanitus, uh, verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you, and on and on. So we have a series of greetings. And then we have a concluding doxology, 25 through 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. That's the last verse, the last word in the book of Romans. So don't any of you say we did not finish teaching through the entire book of Romans. Concluding thought, we are declared righteous in Christ, but must live it out in life. And we can add moment by moment. Does that mean no class next week? No, we need to go back and look at the trees <laughs> in the forest. There you go. <laughs> well, in the time that we have remaining, why don't we have Steve and Betty give us a little introduction, about five or so minutes. Tell us a little bit, remind us of what's been going on in your lives. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are for uh, some people don't know at all anything about you, so just a thumbnail sketch here. Go ahead, Stevie Pooh. Go ahead, Stevie Pooh. Well, we have not been involved. Obviously, this is the first time getting on a Zoom. We were involved with Ray's class when he was doing it personally, uh, and since then have been kind of in a hiatus. We've known we've known Ray forever. <laughs> I guess way back 40 years, 40 plus years in uh, looking forward to get back into Rome now. Uh, I, I can't say that we've been doing much of anything else. We, uh, we moved to a different place and that's taken up a little bit of our time. I've kind of 
basically retired from my business work, so that's taken up some time too. So we're now free to uh, be more involved. We went on one of the trips with the Grace people, with Ray, uh, I think one or two trips before the last two that he's done, uh, and that was that was just wonderful. That was to Israel. Yeah, excuse me. Yes. Um, Steve's from Rhode Island, and I'm from Colorado, and we ended up in Albuquerque um, and met in probably 71. I've been going to Grace Church since uh, dirt was invented, and uh, so I was in the student slum there right next to the old Grace Church, and, um, and so um, that was 69 is when I came to Albuquerque, it was shortly thereafter, became a Christian. And then Steve settled here after Vietnam, and we got married in 74 and raised two girls. And Ray's actually been kind of involved with our family life since then. So You have um, grandkids. We have grandkids. You know, and going through things as we're moving, it just makes me realize what an integral part of our lives, well, all of us, I mean, we're just so... Uh, intertwined with Grace Church. Edwin was a part of our lives for so long. You know, all of our kids were dedicated uh, by Edwin, and then he uh, started dedicating our grandkids and married our daughter to her husband. So, so that's that's pretty much it. That's a, it in a nutshell. We have one daughter in Albuquerque with four, uh, three little boys and one daughter in L.A. She's a COVID nurse, by the way. She just got her vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has a little girl in L.A. So. Any prayer request? We're, we're going to close in a prayer. And then if you have a prayer request, we'll include you guys. Yeah, I'd like to uh, pray for our daughter's family in Los Angeles. They have a lot, a lot of factors that um, they could really use some strength in. Okay, Tony, quick introduction. Right. I'll try to keep this to less than 15 minutes. Great. Just just joking. Um, so Tony Simmons, I'm in the St. Louis, Missouri area on the Illinois side of the river. But uh, if I say Illinois, people think that I'm in Chicago and we're uh, about five hours away from Chicago. So um, I, I joined Ray's uh, class at, at Schaefer this past semester. I uh, was hermeneutics and uh, really enjoyed uh, listening to him, learning from him. Uh, I asked to be on his uh, email distribution and been seeing these weekly um, Zoom meetings uh, on Sunday morning, but we normally have church on Sundays, so I, I can't join, but I was glad I could today. Uh, a lot of folks are out of town this weekend at our church, so we uh, we didn't attend. There wasn't any kids' church. We've got um, two little girls, ages eight and five, so they keep us extremely busy. And um, otherwise, we're uh, just trying to serve the Lord day to day and learn as much as we can. Any prayer requests for you? Um, thankfully, not nothing that really comes to mind. The Lord has been extremely gracious to us and. So just, I guess, his continued uh, presence in our lives. Great. Well, uh, anyone care to close in a word of prayer, uh, keeping Betty and Steve's daughter and anything else? Who's got Which that? daughter is that? Betty and Steve? Who's in L.A.? That's uh, Sarah and Marcel, her husband. 
Okay. And their family. Thank you. And praise the Lord for Tony. You going to do it, Connie? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you are not bound by geography, um, that Tony and St. Louis and Sarah and Marcel in L.A. Um, can be loved on and prayed for by us in Albuquerque. And, Lord, that you would watch over and take care of them, um, especially as Sarah is a COVID nurse and has taken this vaccine. We pray that you would be at work in her body to keep her healthy. Father, that you would, as Geneva prayed earlier, families, what you set up and are being attacked routinely in our culture. So we pray for Tony's family, for Sarah and Marcel's family, Lord, that you would strengthen them um, to withstand the onslaught of the culture and of all of those pundits that would uh, tell them that family is not worth it. Um, that you would uphold them in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, thank you all. We thank will, you, Ray. We, thank will, you, Ray. Uh, we will plan on meeting next week, by the way, in case you were wondering. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, God bless. Thank, thank you, Ray. Thank you all. Happy New Year. Nice to see everybody. Bye, Bankies. Bye. Bye, family. Love you all. Love you, church family. Bye, Bankies. What a gorgeous family.